Some, some early statistics of Adventist evangelism. The annual rate of membership increase from 1870 to 1880 was approximately 12%. Enlarging the church rolls from 5,440 members to 15,570 members. And uh, this was really led by having these large evangelistic camp meetings. And by the way, camp meetings were always supposed to be evangelistic. They weren't supposed to be these myopic, navel-gazing, rotating of the chair on the Titanic situations we often encounter today. And I am delighted that there's a new breath of fresh air coming to camp meetings. I was at a camp meeting recently in Arizona where they had Doug Batchelor there, and they got a satellite truck, and they uplinked the signal from that campgrounds in the middle of the Yava Pines campgrounds, and they uplinked it to... The entire, anyone that was walking, watching on Fox in Phoenix. And I thought, that's it. That's what we're to be doing with our camp meetings. It always makes you, uh, keeps you on the path if you have some non-members who are there. So, I don't know. Oh, this microphone. I got so many microphones up here. Which one do you want on? So, these large of... Or you could just come up front. That's a novel idea. I mean, there's not like there's many seats missing here. So the large evangelistic camp meetings were something else. And I'm glad that that's being revived. Bible work, canvassing, health work coupled with public evangelism really led to the approximate 12% uh, enlargement of the church roles. The church was rapidly expanding. However, by 1900, institutional preoccupations were at last depressing evangelistic enterprise in North America, despite a continuing advance abroad. So, you know, even though things were, were growing, uh, North America started to go down. So the early zeal for camp meetings and evangelistic camp meetings, this is my uh, great aunt May. Um, even though that was going on, this is my great grandfather's tents for his camp meeting. He, he pitched it next to the seminary here in Clinton, Missouri, the old German seminary, and he held an evangelistic meeting at the same time Conradi was there trying to talk people out of some of their uh, confidence in Ellen White. And they had a big baptism. He baptized five of the seminary professors. <laughs> so <laughs> it was a pretty interesting story. This is my great aunt being baptized way back there in Clinton, Missouri by my great-grandfather, um, um, Malcolm. The basic method during this period was a proliferation, proliferation of small one-man tent meetings. Adventist tent meetings were characterized more by small group teaching than by evangelistic oratory before large audiences. So they had this going out with small one-man tent meetings. Um, we do that still in Amazing Facts. We have our evangelists going in smaller meetings and bigger meetings all the time. The evangelistic results, however, began to plummet. Institution, institutional infrastructure continued to expand. So at the same time, the uh, um, institutions were expanding, evangelism started to fail. However, the institutions were always spoken of in evangelistic terms. You know, had things like Emmanuel Missionary College and and College of Medical Evangelists. And at least there was this whole idea that the institutions themselves were to be evangelistic. When Ellen White returned from Australia, um, oh, sorry. Sorry, you can't see that. 
That's been, thanks. Um, she began to urge two reforms. Remember, she had been sent on an extended vacation to Australia. Um, and, you know, she had struggled over that. The, the General Conference wanted to send her, but they left the decision, final decision, up to her. And she prayed over it, and she finally said, I will go where the, where, where the brethren want me to go. And she went there, and of course, as you know, Avondale College was, was started there. At the same time, there were several colleges started here. That's why she wrote Testimonies, Volume 6. So if you're planning on starting a school or, you know, all those different kind of things, Testimonies, Volume 6 is a great thing to read. Also, the sanitarium work, a great thing to read. Um, like, for instance, if you had like a hands-on medical type thing you were trying to get involved in. So... Um, <clears throat> Which, by the way, is an excellent school for those of you listening if you want to go somewhere for a great school. Uh, she began to urge two reforms. First of all, a streamlining of church organization. She says, look, we got, we got to dump the plum, so to speak. And secondly, an aggressive plan of city evangelists. She said, these are huge cities. We've got to reach the cities. 1901 General Conference, she said, look, we need to reorganize and refocus. And she went right to the front and said, we must realize. My great-grandfather was there, and I have his notes on that meeting, and, and he was quite impressed with her presence at that time. In 1904, of all the North American conferences combined, all the North American conferences combined, had a membership of 60,000, many institutions, and they had a tithe income of more than half a million dollars. And they reported a net increase, however, of only 1,300 members. So even though they had this, all these members, they, they'd only had 1,325 members that joined. And Ellen White was not happy about this. Um, her comments seemed to be falling on deaf ears. Six years later, in 1907, White said, We stand rebuked by God because the large cities right within our sight are unworked and unwarned, the terrible charge of neglect is brought against those who have been long in the work in this very America and yet have not entered the large cities. We have done none too much for foreign lands, but we have done comparatively nothing for the great cities beside our own doors. And White declared explicitly to A.G. Daniels, voices are to be heard in every city proclaiming the last message of mercy to the world. So she said, look... <laughs> You need to be in those cities. Uh, you need to be reaching out. And, uh, and it wasn't happening. Two years later, 1909 General Conference, there was still no change. Now, how many think this lady has been kind of patient? 1902, now 1909. She's kind of patient, but she's running out of time with her biological clock, right? She's getting close to, well, she died in 19, what? 15, so... Astonishingly, with few more than 1,200 ministerial workers in the entire world, Daniels revealed that more than 500 persons had been drawn since 1901 into the administrative circle for which he believed would render greater administrative efficiency. <laughs> so he thinks this is a great report. We have 500 more people in the office. This about sent Ellen White as nearly ballistic as she could get, right? She just is like, this is, oh, man. 
Daniels was content to report that during the quadrennium, world church membership had increased by 16,000 or 4% growth. But he didn't, he failed to mention it as this little statistical whitewash that the Adventist growth picture in the United States had only increased by 1% per year. So he didn't mention that. Well, scant lip service was paid to the whites, to whites council to work the large cities with the session adopting plans that while good as far as they went did not emphasize systematic public evangelism. So A.G. Daniels and W.W. W. Prescott um, had their own focuses at that time. A.G. Daniels wanted to focus on organizational issues. W.W. W. Prescott wanted more scholarly search for theological truth. And he did a lot of work, a lot of good work, but he just, he just uh, was studying away. Um, the diffident approach of Daniels and Prescott to the problem of city evangelism, their tendency to concentrate on organization and theology, their failure at the 1909 session to respond to her past appeals to do otherwise were too much to bear for Ellen White. She sought an immediate audience with the members of the General Conference Committee and spoke to them in severe terms of what she considered to be their duty. Uh, how many of you wish that she could be resurrected today and attend the next uh, conference? You know, I think there might be a little whitewashing. Um, by the way, I think it might be different than then. I think we really do focus on, on evangelism as a church today. We, we talk about going wide all the time. We sometimes don't go as deep, though. Hey, this is what she said. We must guard against tying up, these were the resolutions, men who could do more important work on the public platform in large cities and presenting before unbelievers the truths of God's Word. Don't tie up people that are good at preaching, doing things they shouldn't be doing. B, we must enter into this work with a perseverance that will not allow any slackening of our efforts until we shall see the salvation of our God. So, you know, if you blow your budget, keep going, go back, try something different, you know, just don't give up. And this is why she can give the counsel for canvassers to go back to the same city again and again and again. The dog will eventually stop biting you because it will think... You're the dog's friend. <laughs> my great-grandfather was, uh, my grandfather was a canvasser. He told the story about this dog. He went back to the house so many times that the dog would come and greet him. But at first, the dog was biting him, you know. Once the, uh, the first sale at this lady's house, he finally got a sale. The dog ripped his pants off when he was leaving. So he went inside and asked the lady, he said, my pants are ripped off. And he was standing like this. She said, go upstairs, I'll, I'll turn around, and throw your pants down. So he went upstairs and he threw his pants down the stairs. So she was fixing his pants when her husband came home. He was upstairs waiting for his pants to be fixed, and she was fixing the pants. Anyway, the joys of canvassing. So, <laughs> see, so guard against tying up the people for more important work. Uh, don't allow slackening of efforts and see, we must specifically place in these cities capable men who can present the third angel's message in a manner so forceful that it will strike home to the heart. Man who can do this cannot afford to be gathered in one place to do the work that others might do. So she said, look, don't put people that can do stuff others can do 
Um, there. You know, I, I had an AFCO student in his last session that some, one of you mentioned to me in the break. He says, you know, I'm a district attorney. Anybody could do this job. Most people could do this job. But not many people can preach the gospel. I want to go to AFCO and learn how to preach the gospel. That was quite a testimony to our class. And by the way, I had in this last class about six nurses. I had three physicians, a surgeon, and a preventive medicine. The other, they said the same thing. They want to preach the gospel. <clears throat> I think it's happening across the spectrum. And a lot of young people, too, they said, I don't just want to go to school and get a BMW. I'm okay with a sob. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's kind of the sob story. But, you know, I'm okay with a diesel rabbit. As men and women are brought into the truth, D, in the cities, there, in other words, point four, their means will be consecrated to the Lord's service and we will see an increase in our resources. So she said, look, if you do this, don't tie people up, have perseverance, have people do stuff that no one else can do. In other words, put them where it should be. That tithe will come in and you will not suffer loss. Mrs. White then sought action at once with an insistent message that Daniels, and especially Prescott, lay aside present work and go personally into the field to conduct evangelistic meetings. It says to A.G. Daniels, stop going around and pontificating about your, the fact that you're the conference president and all that stuff. Go out and do meetings. Prescott, like your writing, buddy, but time to go out in the field. <laughs> it's interesting to note that Daniel's description of Prescott's evangelistic abilities. This is A.G. Daniel's talking about Prescott. This is what he said. He feels very keenly his lack of experience in that line of work. <laughs> but he's determined to do his best. As you know, he's about 60 years old. And having never conducted a series of tent meetings nor working in city mission work, it's something of an undertaking for him. So he's, she's going to be easy on the guy. But really, what he wanted was her to be easy on him. But he was going like, oh. So he's 60 years old. Now, none of us here may be 60, but I love talking to people that are like 60 and above. You know, and I read this to them, they go, oh, even today. During the question, and that's what I like about share him. I like share him, getting people out there and sharing him. I was listening to the testimonies of some of these people out there preaching these things. Now, admittedly, you can, you can do a lot more. And I was listening to them preaching these series, and they came back, and they got converted themselves by preaching. They listened to themselves preach, and they got converted. Now, during a question and answer period, someone asked if Prescott could continue to serve as the editor of the review while at the same time doing some meetings. No, don't let him go. He's a good editor. He's got, he needs to work and write. She said, no. Go. Do it full time. <laughs> He got back in soon to that line of work. but So they were not so happy, and Ellen White decided to dramatize her message. Now, she's not into drama. This was not like a skit or a charade or some kind of, you know, what I'm, you know what I mean. In other words, she acts and speaks louder than words, and so what did she do? Before returning to St. Helena, Mrs. White dramatized her message to the general conference leaders by making a personal tour of some of the eastern cities accompanied by S.N. Haskell and Brother Starr and two old-time evangelists and her son W.C. White. Included in her itinerary was New York, Philadelphia, Newark, Portland, Maine, where Mrs. White conducted a series of nightly evangelistic meetings with good results. 
So she says, you know, I'm not telling you to do something I'm not going to do. I'll go on and do it. Good question. How old do you suppose Ellen White was? She was 81 years old. I love sharing this with young people. So you can't, you know, life begins at 80. But don't wait till you're 80. Amen? Don't wait till you're ready. Do it now. But how many of you think that that is just an impressive thing? Amen. Ask Prescott to go do it when he's 60. And she says, you need to know how it's done? I'll go do it too. She preaches a series of meetings. You know, a lot of my churches, the people that get things done are those that are over 80. They did a study of the people that give the most blood to the American Red Cross. You know who they are? That's the people over 70 or 80 that saw the conflict of World War II. And they're the ones that saw the need of blood and they got so used to giving blood that they're the ones that still give blood today. But I think we need some young blood Amen. out there, right? They shouldn't be giving their red blood cells. We need their white blood cells. They got the wisdom. Amen. They know all the diseases the church has faced. We should be out there on the front line spilling our blood. Anyway, that's another subject. So... What else did Ellen White do besides holding those meetings? Later in 1909, she extensively documented her intense interest in evangelism in the final volume of the Testimonies, Volume 9. So the very last thing she wrote was about evangelism. You read Testimonies, Volume 9, it's like, uh, well, it is an amazing volume. How many of you have ever read that? It's a wonderful volume. It talks about evangelism and door-to-door -door work, health evangelism, canvassing, city evangelism, lay evangelism, Bible work, holding meetings, public evangelism. And she talked about supporting the work of Sutherland and McGann. See, her big line was, don't do things by proxy, but by personal involvement. Um, get involved. When Daniels came to visit Ellen White and talk with her about projected meetings to be held by others in New York City, to his surprise and dismay, she flatly refused to see him until he should personally lead out in the work of evangelism in a manner to inspire complete denominational commitment. So I'll get the picture. The general conference president comes and knocks at the door. Hello? Oh, it's Elder Daniels. He's here. Well, tell Mrs. White. Mrs. White, Elder Daniels is downstairs wanting to talk to you. Uh, tell him that until he holds a meeting, I can't talk to him. Don't try this at home. <laughs> and then she wrote about it. When the president of the general conference is converted, what? <laughs> he will know what to do with the messages God has sent him. <laughs> so how important is evangelism? It was an issue of conversion. <laughs> the general conference president needed a little converting. Personal involvement, something important too. Now notice how Daniel's re related to her message. She sent messages to me regarding the work in the cities in the eastern cities, and I seemed unable to understand them fully. <laughs> That's generous. <laughs> Consequently, I did not do all that these messages indicated that should be done. Finally, I received a message in which she said, when the president of the general conference is converted, he will know what to do with the messages God has sent to him. 
I did not then <laughs> have as much light on the matter of conversion as I now have. I thought I'd been converted 50 years before. <laughs> and so I had, but I have since learned that we need to be reconverted now and then. That message telling me that I needed to be converted cut me severely at the time. <laughs> but I did not reject it. I began to pray for the conversion I needed to give me the understanding I seemed to lack. Isn't that a powerfully good response? Whoa. You say whatever you want about A.G. Daniels, but I, that's, a, that's a powerful. I want to have that attitude. At his request... A.G. Daniels was relieved of a long-standing itinerary of camp meetings during the summer of 1910 and plans for an October trip to Australia, um, in other words, a year, in order to respond to the messages of the spirit of prophecy. So he cleared his schedule, and then once he did that, he had some promises that came from the little lady in St. Helena. Go forward as you have become using your position of influence. I can now take hold with you in full confidence. And by the way, he became so unsure of himself that he said, do you, do you want me to be general conference president anymore? Do you think I should continue? And she said, no, 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 no. Use your position as general conference president and go model the behavior. The Lord in his mercy will pardon the failure of the past. He will be your helper. We will draw with you and give you all the help we can to use your position of influence as president of the conference and to work wisely in the education of others to labor in the cities. Redeem the lost time of the past nine years by going ahead now with the work in our cities, and the Lord will bless and sustain you. Note the impact this had on A.G. Daniels. In turning my attention again to evangelistic lines of endeavor, I am something like the old soldiers of Hugh the bugle call. It thrills my heart, quickens my activities, and gives me delight. <laughs> so he, he was getting some gumption in his, or, you know, some pep in his step. What did he desire to do then as a result? I wish I could fire the heart of every minister in this denomination with the feeling I have regarding the importance and great value of evangelistic work. He was just warming up. He says, man, everybody's got to do this. What was the impact on North America and the world church of a reconverted general conference president who began to do evangelism? Conferences in the large cities... Um, these were the recommendations that came from the Fall Annual Council of 1910. They recommended that conferences in which large cities were located establish small training centers where workers of various kinds could remain for a time to receive an all-around training in city work. In other words, coming out of that, they said, we might as well start an AFCO <laughs> or a Mission College or an Arise or a Souls West or South or East or North or... It was also recommended that evangelistic efforts in the largest cities be so conducted as to accomplish as much as possible in the training of younger conference laborers and laymen. So instead of doing it all on his own, he said, look, I need to get involved and train other people. I had a guy in my office the other day, I was in charge of a large organization and I, in the church, and I was talking to him and I said, so who's your understudy, who are you training? He says, I, 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 I don't have anyone. And I talked to someone else and another, I don't have anyone. We've got to be training people all the time, don't you think? 
Um, if you got on an airline pilot and you got on a, a flight going from here to Las Vegas and you looked in the cockpit of this huge jumbo jet and there was only one pilot, would you be a little concerned? You want to have someone that can take over. Right? Students in some of the Adventist schools, when they seem mature and promising, should be encouraged during vacations and after graduation to connect with city training schools. That was good. A special course was inaugurated for the training of mature young people who could spend a, but a short time in school. An 18-week training course, by the way, AFCO is 17 weeks. 17 and a half. An 18-week training course including an amazing variety of studies. History and prophecy and Bible doctrines and pastoral training and Bible work and Reformation history and general history and English and journalism and Greek and hygiene and sanitation and botany and bookkeeping and denominational history. Uh, we have all those at AFCO except botany, I think. It's not, it's just, you know, an overview of some. A series of ministerial institutes for all pastoral and evangelistic workers. And Daniels said, we're not planning to spend long weeks of systematic study of theology, but the study of the most vital fundamental questions which have a bearing upon the efficient, an efficient, able, successful ministry. Wow. Doctrinal themes, studies on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, ministerial duties and methods of work, not overlooking the personal needs of the workers. He set aside time for prayer meetings and social meetings, which is a testimony meetings, basically. In addition, evangelistic meetings for the public were held every evening. So, you know, at AFCO, we do that at the end of AFCO, but, and also at the beginning, we have health things out in the community. But every evening, never far connected from... You know, that's where you get in trouble. If you're not always actively witnessing, that's where you get in trouble. When, when, when uh, David stayed home and sent the kings out to war, you know, that's where he got in trouble. What was the result? What was the result of Daniel's uh, renewed commitment? January 8, 1914. Not too long till I would die, but notice what has happened. He reported, a deep religious revival and reformation are in progress among our people. It is difficult to tell just when and how this revival began. It seems to have begun in the very earnest appeals of the spirit of prophecy during, the 19, during 1909 in behalf of the millions of lost souls in the great cities. So he says, well, that's where this revival began. Now, an outside source, the Christian Advocate, November 4, 1915, had this to say. There are 125,844 Adventists, and the net gain last year was 10%. What had it been? 1%. Now it's 10%. Whoa! I mean, I think that's a pretty good jump. A 1917 survey revealed that during the year, major evangelistic campaigns had been conducted in more than half of America's 71 cities of 100,000 population or more, and plans were afoot to cover the rest by the next year or so. Wow. That's great, wasn't it? In 1917, evangelistic successes brought membership gains to a peak increase of, notice this, 19% over the preceding year. Now, 
how impressive is the snapshot of average history we've been considering? And I remind you of a slide I showed you earlier today. Usually organizations go from their foundation to an infancy stage to an adolescence to a prime. And then after that prime time is reached, they usually will start going down through aristocracy where people have a sense of entitlement. They say, no, we hire an evangelist to do that. We hire someone else to do this. We do that. They do this. Um, leads to bureaucracy and then usually death. And Adventism was, was headed to severe decline and death, wasn't it? Mostly administration, no new growth. But what happened? Just like when Jesus came and looked like there was going to be nothing coming out of it, there was one, there was 12, there was 70, there was 5,000, then there was 12, then there was one, and then there was no one. But then when he was resurrected, things begin to expand again as you read Acts. And what happened was they did the loop. There was a change. They turned the world side up, upside down in one generation. I think that's what the generation of Youth for Christ is all about. I think that's what Western Youth Conference is all about. An army of youth rightly trained to begin turning the world upside down. You know, I want to share something with you. I think that we need to go wide, but we also need to go deep. You know, I said this before, probably to some of you personally, but I still believe it more, and I'll tell you it's going, beginning to happen. I get impressed when I talk to the Mormons. I'm impressed by their theology, or should I say I'm a little depressed. I'm impressed that people would actually believe that theology. I'm impressed. How do they get members in their church? I mean, they've come to my house and they start out with the most amazing things. Baptizing people for the dead. All these different things. They'll tell you right on the first visit. And still they get people joining their church. How do they do that? They have 50 or 60,000 people going door to door right now while we're sitting here in the relative comfort of the commodious chapel at Weimar College with the new padded seats. And they're out. The young ladies go for one year because they need to get back and have babies so that the disembodied spirits can have a place to live. And the young men go for two years. And they go to these schools all over the world that are coupled with language schools. And they learn about their faith, and they usually have about eight points, and they start out with the most objectionable point, and they go right down, and they find anybody and anybody that will listen, and they love those people, and they, they reach out to them. And they have an amazing network. How many of you think we should do something like that? Amen. How many think WYC is good and good as far as it goes, but what do you think... What would happen if we decided at WIC to have schools all around the world and we created a culture and we led the way by each of us going for one year or two years in groups of twos and doing just what they did, but, but with a message that I think has a little bit more compelling. Amen. How many think that would be an amazing thing? By the way, you say, well, that could never happen in the Adventist church. You know, it didn't always happen in the Mormon church. It was in 1970-something that the idea was first hatched. And from 1970 until now is only about how many years? 30, 38 years. How many of you think that something like this could catch, catch on? 
and uh, I think it should. So at Amazing Facts, we've decided to franchise AFCOs. We'd like to see AFCO-like schools in every division. And we'd like them to be beachheads where people went out. I don't mind if it's AFCO or Arise or Mission College or whatever you call it. I don't care what you call it. I think all the schools are good. I'm not in a competition. I'm into repetition at this point. We want to finish the work. Amen? Amen. And then they go around the world. I would love to have 50,000, 60,000, 70,000 people out right now. So when I'm sleeping, as Ellen White says in Testimonies, Volume 6, I have a missionary in Africa that's working for me. Amen. Have you ever read that? It says, when I'm asleep, I have, a, I have a missionary in China working for me. <laughs> I like that. And so they turned the world upside down in one generation. The same was true in the early 1900s in Adventism. The uh, Adventist church should have died with all. Here's what the historian said in this book that I was reading on Adventist evangelism. With all its complex organization and its heavy commitment to institutions, the Adventist church had once again been confirmed as an evangelistic movement with public evangelism reestablished as a prime function. Truly a remarkable reversal in the history of what was already a highly institutionalized denomination. I got back from Sweden recently. I was in Sweden, and I was over there visiting two young friends of mine, not so young anymore, but they were younger the first time I met them. And they had come to my church in Kansas, and they had tried to recruit me to go to Sweden. And I said, no, I can't go to Sweden. I didn't realize why, but I guess it was because I was supposed to go to Amazing Facts. So they went to Sweden, and they went with nothing but great hopes and a vision to reach Sweden. And the, in Sweden, the population of Adventists is very low, and the population of young people in the church is even lower, less than 300 people that are under 30. And most of them were not attending. And so they went over there, and they started to do just basic things, basic evangelism, but they coupled with it a media ministry where they would tape it and film it, and then they would show what was happening in their little local church, a tiny little church. And I thought it was pretty tiny when I got there. They had about 30 or 40 when they first got there. When I was there, they had about 100 people, and I thought, this is a pretty small church. But then I heard that the cathedral down the road had a budget of $6 million a year and a staff of 40 people, and at services they usually have about 37 people. <laughs> and about... 30 of them are the staff. And then I learned that really money doesn't really matter that much. You can throw money at things, but if you have no message and no vision. You see, in Sweden they're concerned because they had this whole idea that tolerance was the biggest truth. And that worked okay until everybody came from the Islamic countries and they drove a truck through the door of tolerance but became intolerant of others. And so the government, the government itself said in 2000, we have to re republish a book and get it out there for people to read so they can know who they are. And guess what book they published? The Bible. So all the billboards were printed with books of the Bible and all this in 2000. And they started saying, they had a reading campaign to try and get people to read the Bible. They put pictures on the Bible of people with little to no clothes to try and get their attention. Not a marketing technique I think we could probably emulate. But they were doing anything to try and get their way, uh, get them to read the Bible. 
Now that's the milieu these young people went over in. And what they did, they just put on the air cooking schools, Bible studies, depression recovery programs, all these different things, they put it on the air. Guess what happened? That depression-laden society that had lost its way in understanding who it was or where it was going, the people of that community, those communities, as they flipped and channels surfed through all this, the channels, they saw this one channel that was giving something worthwhile. And they looked at it, and they said, wow, that's something. And they started to listen to it, and they started to go to Adventist churches. Amen. And the growth in Sweden had gone down for 18 years. But in the last two years, they've had Amen. 80 baptisms. Amen. And I got to see a number of them right when I was there. It was amazing. It was electrifying. Big things are happening in Sweden. I believe that's going to be a place of growth. Amen. I believe people... Are going to, many more people are going to come into the church. You know why I know that? I was preaching there. We prayed for uh, a good long time before the services began that morning. And there were these people that were in their 40s and 50s and 60s that were saying, this evangelism stuff doesn't work, you young kids. This, and I didn't know what they were saying, but people translated what this one lady was saying. And so we just went and prayed some more. And we prayed, and I was preaching, and I made the appeal after my sermon. The title of my sermon was, Are You Normal? And I made this appeal at the end of my sermon, and four people arose. And remember, people never respond to evangelism in Sweden. That's what the kids were being told. And my quip was, that's true, they don't, if you don't do it. <laughs> so I, I finished the appeal, and we were praying, and four people came forward to the front. Now, what I didn't know about those four people was that they had never been in an Adventist church before. Amen. And they had walked off the street that day. Amen. And they had heard the message, and they came forward. Amen. And since that time, they studied, and I've been there a number of months ago, they studied, and now they've been baptized into Amen. the church. There's nothing like it. And so Sweden has done the loop. Isn't that great? I believe God is wanting to do big things. Can it happen again? I believe it will. If it's God-ordained, it will be God-sustained. And uh, it is happening. Paul Ratsara, president of the South Africa Indian Ocean Division, who was a guest at GYC, said his division is targeting Johannesburg, South Africa, with a population of 3.2 million for evangelism. The focus is training lay members to become soul winners. Why do you suppose he was invited to GYC? Because this is what he's involved in. And they begin to pray. Following his presentation, Mark Finley added that in one South Southern African Indian Division Pastoral District, 273 members scattered in a few small churches were empowered for evangelism through prayer and training. They began holding evangelistic meetings with 3,000, and 3,000 people were baptized by the end of the first series. Amen. Two and a half years later, the district membership had grown to 21,000 members. You say, oh, that's in South Africa. That could never happen here. Well, it is happening not only here but other places in India. Roger Stone and his wife over there working with Amazing Facts are founding orphanages and they're training ministers like I mentioned in the earlier presentation. He can't preach to anybody over there. He's disallowed to preach in these Hindu villages and all these different things, but he can teach. 
and he's teaching over 350 ministers, and he's also teaching a bunch of ladies, and these ladies can go where none of the men can go. They're going into these forbidden Hindu places, and they're going in, and they go in, and they go out, and they're reaching out, and people are responding all across India, Amen. and they're responding to the message. I think it is happening. It is happening. Dwayne McKee, who was the president of Arizona Conference, where I just, he just invited me to speak at the camp meeting. Now he's at the uh, union level in that, in that um, union. He highlighted the transformation that had taken place in the Arizona Conference over the last four years. They went from a conference that was having to lay off pastors to having a 47% tithe increase. I mean, that's pretty good. 47% tithe increase. They've invested in evangelism, and it appears to be paying off in some amazing ways. Their conference has held some 900 evangelistic meetings, 700 in Arizona and 200 overseas, and the results are in. What happened there? The Pacific Union's growth rate had been 1%, and the Arizona conference during that same time had grown by 17%. Does it happen around the world? Does it happen in America? I was there in Arizona. I didn't believe these numbers, but I was just there, and I talked to the people. How did this happen? What was going on? And they talked about the small in-house groups that they held. These are not big evangelistic meetings. This is like a, a meeting in a home. That's how they got those big numbers. And they just invite someone down the street, and they just study with them. And that's easy to do. Could you do that? You could do that. You say, I'm in school. Yeah, good. The people you're in school with are the people you should reach out to. They're the ones that you're to minister to, right? Um, I had some of my best Bible studies when I was in school. Seems that when you're more busy, you get more done. So, like I said earlier, I love working in Amazing Facts. That's a collection of former felons, cavemen, serial sinners, <laughs> and bad apples to add myself to the mix. But God is wonderfully changing, and He wants to see more amazing facts. So what about you? What about us? We've talked about restoration in our first talk. What about you and health ministry? What about you and your own life? We've talked about education ministry. We've shown how Sutherland and McGann explicitly word by, lived by every word of God, and they changed the world in their generation, and there were institutions, and there were things that went around the world, and we saw how Ellen White said that that, would, that, would, that could happen again. What about adoration? How many of you don't want to go the way of the emergent church, but go the way of the detergent church? <laughs> and what about proclamation? How many think that God has a, some message for you to share? Not for you to just support, but for you to share. Not by proxy. Remember what Ellen White said to A.G. Daniels? On the general conference, his president is converted. <laughs> what personally is God calling you to do, and what is he calling me to do? The students from AFCO just got back. They went through the four-month course, and then a number of them went to Columbia. Some of them were in my preaching class, and I got to tell you, I was concerned <laughs> when they went down there. But I said, no, God's going to bless. And every single one of them had baptisms, Amen. people that made decisions. They came back. And uh, I think even more 
exciting than that is the fact that the union president said, how can we get a school like this down here? They want to not just go deep, but they want to go wide. They want people to be trained in that part of the world. And I think that's good news. So what about you and what about now? You might be saying, you know, I've, I really haven't really followed through like I should. But I like this quote from Christ Optic Lessons, page 332. If you've made mistakes, you certainly gain a victory if you see these mistakes and regard them as beacons of warning. Thus, you turn defeat into victory, disappointing the enemy and honoring your Redeemer. You remember the story of John Newton, who wrote that wonderful song, Amazing Grace. He was a slave trader, and he had been responsible for misery to untold thousands of people. But when God got a hold of his heart, he completely changed. And his disappointment, his disappointing of God turned into an appointment, and the rest is history. And I can just start with a changed heart. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The change can begin in your heart or in the heart of someone that's listening. So the real question is, where are you on the graph? Wherever you are, if you're alive, or if you can hear me speaking, God can help you do the loop. And you can go, turn the world upside down with and through the help of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, today we're thankful that we could just develop over these brief four hours uh, your ministry and your methods of restoration, education, adoration, and proclamation. Help us not to just talk, but now to do. Um, help us not to just sit, but to stand up. Help us not to just come, but to go. And in our own lives, just make it clear as to what you would have the next step be for us. Fill us with a holy boldness. Thank you for the encouraging reminders of how you have worked, are working, and will work. Give us the confidence of an 81-year-old doing evangelistic meetings. And we thank you and we come in Christ's name. Amen.